0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
1: I know that I had said that we are going to start the book of Galatians this morning, and it was my intention to begin the book of Galatians this morning, but this past week was the Embracing the Truth conference in Galladeville. And I taught a couple of lectures there on the subject of theodicy. And even though there was a live stream happening of the conference, the video on the live stream was really excellent. I mean, it really looked good. The audio, not so much. In years past, I've come home with recordings CD recordings, DVD recordings. I've come home with recordings of the various messages from the conference, mine and other people's. And we used to post them on our website and various other places. But because the audio on the live stream isn't reproducible, those lectures that I worked for months on and then presented at the conference will not appear on our website, so I decided, and I hope you all agree with me, I decided that the next couple of Sundays I'm going to present those very lectures so that there will be recordings that will be on our website, and in a strange way this will also be the beginning of our teaching on the book of Galatians. If you don't see the connection, remember that I said in a strange way. But So theodicy, that's what we're going to talk about for the next couple of weeks. Do you know the word theodicy? Are you familiar with theodicy years ago? I mean, like a lot of years ago. I mean, I had hair. I had I didn't just have hair. I had a ponytail. And my beard was brown. And I was a young theological hippie back in those days, and in those days, I attended classes over in Franklin on systematic theology, and that's where I was introduced to the concept of theodicy, and it has rolled around in my brain ever since, but we've never, in our 22 years here at GCA, we've never really approached the subject of theodicy. And so, when Alton Pickett, Elder Alton Pickett, asked me to teach on theodicy at the conference, I was very excited by the prospect. I really wanted to do it. And one hallmark of GCA and teaching twice a week and then the conferences in between and stuff for the last 22 years is that I very seldom get a second shot at anything. I just kind of say things, we put it on the, on the website, and then it's just out there. And so I like the idea that I get a second shot at these particular lectures, because there were a few things that when I sat down after presenting these lectures, I sat down and thought about what I should have said and what I wish I had said and what I would have liked to have added had there been more time. Well, here at GCA, I have the luxury of time because I have the luxury of next week. So even though I manage to do these lectures in two mornings at the conference, it may take us three weeks to do here just because I do want to fill in all the gaps. Theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y is the way it's spelled. Definitionally... Theodicy is a branch of philosophy or theology that's dealing with the issue of evil in light of the existence of a holy God. In other words, if God is just and holy and good, then how is it that evil and misery exist in his creation? So the process of theodicy is basically vindicating God, defending his holiness in light of the evil of the world. Now, I don't know if you spend any time online. I spend way too much time online. And what you're going to hear as we go through this subject, you're going to hear many of the arguments that the cynics and that the atheists online often use in order to discount the biblical God, and the biblical teaching. And this is one of their favorites. If God exists, why is there so much misery? There's a very noted atheist who a few years ago said that if God existed, when he approached God, he was going to ask him some questions, which is awfully bold. And he said, I'm going to start out with asking God, why is there so much misery, children dying of cancer, wars? Why are there, there's there so much ugliness and misery and sin in the world? Why did you let that exist? And that was his primary argument for his own atheism. And so this subject of theodicy is an important subject in order to be able to vindicate the holiness of God, despite the fact that sin exists and that evil exists. The word theodicy is made up of two Greek words. You probably know the word theos. What does the word theos mean? God. God. It means God. Now, among the pantheon of mythological gods that the Greeks had, they had a goddess named Dikei. And DK is the goddess of justice. So basically, when you take the word DK and theos and you put them together, that's the root of our word theodicy. So like I said, it's a vindication or a a trial or a judgment of divine goodness and divine providence in light of the existence of evil. It essentially means justifying God okay so for the next couple weeks we're going to be talking about justifying God let me say right on the front end that takes a tremendous amount of hubris for us humans to think we need to justify God for instance in Romans 3 4 Paul writes let God be found true though Every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So, according to Paul, it's mankind that are being judged, not God. And yet, in the process of theodicy, we're going to be essentially putting God in the dock, putting God on trial, and Justifying God and his behavior. According to Paul, men are on trial, God is not on trial, and so we have to approach the subject with appropriate humility and recognize that even though we're doing this philosophically, even though we're doing this theologically, we can't ever reach the point where we think we have the right, the authority that we can actually judge God on the basis of what God does. Isaiah 55.8, I know I quote it a lot, but I want to remind us of it. Once again, it says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. That's God speaking. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And we have to remember that. We have to retain that throughout this series of studies on theodicy. We have to remember that we can't hold God to our standards because we're human, we're fleshly, we're sinful. Whatever God does by virtue of the fact that he is a righteous, holy God, whatever he does then is by definition righteous and holy. Even though we can't always understand it or comprehend it as being righteous and holy, my hope is that by the end of these couple of lessons over the next couple of weeks that you'll reach the point where you'll agree that God not only is right and holy in everything he does, but I think we will begin to understand the purpose of evil in the creation of God and in the process of salvation and in the process of God glorifying himself. God does not justify himself. God doesn't make excuses for himself. That's obvious when you think of Moses at the burning bush after being on the backside of nowhere for 40 years, after fleeing from Egypt because he was a murderer. So he's about 80 years old at this point, and he's out in the desert, and he sees a burning bush, and the bush speaks to him, calls him by name, tells him to take off his shoes because the ground he's standing on is holy ground. And the command is given him, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Then Moses asks a really logical question. Moses said, who are you? Who should I say sent me? Which makes all the sense in the world because the Egyptians have gods for everything. They have a whole pantheon of God. They have hundreds of gods. So naturally Moses would say, well, which one are you? And God's answer is, I am. That's his whole answer. In other words, all those other gods, all the gods of Egypt, all the pantheon of gods, they are not. But you'll notice what God did not do. He did not give Moses an explanation for why Moses ought to obey him. He didn't justify himself. He didn't explain himself. He didn't define himself. Instead, what he told Moses is, I am because I am. And that's all you get. There are no other gods but me. The point is, God is not in the business of justifying himself. And so we've got to be very careful when we approach this idea that we're now going to put God on trial, that we're going to ask questions about why do you do the things you do. In Romans 9, Paul, after laying out the predestinary will of God, after laying out that God is in charge of absolutely everything, Paul then writes, you're going to say to me, why does he then find fault, seeing as how no one has resisted his will? Is a perfectly good question, because how can God both be sovereign over what people do and then judge people for what they do? And yet we see that all the way through the Old Testament. One of the most famous examples that I turn to frequently is back in Isaiah 10, where God says that he's going to use the Assyrians to punish his people Israel because of Israel's sin, and then he's going to punish Assyria for the pride and haughtiness with which they went and conquered his people Israel. So not only did God use Assyria and their armies as the punishment on his people for their disobedience, but then he punished Assyria for the way they did it. And they only did what he said they were going to do. And so Paul, knowing that history of Israel, can ask a question like, well, then how can God be in charge of what everybody does and then judge people for what they do? So Paul knows the inherent problems in the sovereignty of God. So he puts it as a a question, it's an interrogative, you're going to ask then, so he says, you're going to say, I know, I get it, what I've written here, and you're going to come to the conclusion, Paul, how can that be the way God really is, how can God find fault, seeing as how nobody has resisted his will, okay, this is the perfect opportunity for Paul to then say, let me justify God to you. Let me explain God and how he is and what he does. Let me do that for you. Paul doesn't do that. Paul does the same thing God did back to Moses. Paul's answer is, who do you think you are? Who are you that replies against God? Is the thing that is formed, the thing that is made, going to then question the one that made it? Are you going to ask, why'd you make me like this? You don't have the power. You don't have the authority to question God because God is the maker. You are the thing that is made. He likens himself to a potter making pots. And he argues both through Paul and back in Jeremiah. He argues, I can do whatever I want with what's mine. And I can make each of you any way I want. And if I don't like the way I'm making you, I can demolish you and make you again. I can do whatever I want with what is mine. And so we, the the pottery, the broken pottery, the crackpots, we don't get the authority to stand up against God and say, why do you do what you do? So biblically, whether we're talking Moses, whether we're talking Pauline theology, biblically, what we see consistently is that we just don't have that authority. Do me a favor and turn to Romans 11 for just a moment. After Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you'll find the book of Acts and then the book of Romans. And we're going to go to Romans chapter 11, the very end of the chapter. This is Paul's doxology. The word doxa is translated as glory. A doxology is when somebody writing or praying or talking about God reaches the point where they just have to praise him. They just have to worship him. They just have to repeat the glories of God. Paul has just spent three chapters explaining God's relationship to Israel and that even though he has scattered them, he hasn't lost them, and that he has brought Gentiles to faith in order to make Israel jealous, but then he concludes, but all Israel will be saved, and he realizes that that is just mind-boggling. That is just difficult for us to figure out because we are not God. Are we all pretty clear on the we're not God thing? Yes, amen. Okay. Let's start reading at verse, well, 32. What an astounding statement. God has shut up everybody, Jew and Gentile, into disobedience so that he can show mercy to all those he shows mercy to. Okay, that's an astounding statement. That's the kind of theology that just permeates this whole section of the book of Romans. And so in verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how unfathomable are his ways. That's a great word, unfathomable When you're trying to figure out how deep something is, they measure it in fathoms. And so he's saying the depth and the height and the grandeur and the glory of God is beyond our understanding. So you've got a God who doesn't justify himself and just simply says, I am that I am. And then you've got Paul saying, you're going to ask me, why does he do what he does? And his answer is, who are you? And here Paul says you're not really ever going to understand or comprehend God because God is far, far beyond our human capabilities. And that's why I started with God saying, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. So you're never going to reach the point where you have the thinking capacity where you are going to comprehend an eternally righteous, holy God because you are a finite, sinful creature. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or whoever became his counselor, When did God ever turn to anybody for advice? God ever call you up, Jeff, and say, here's what I'm thinking. What do you got? It's just never happened because nobody has ever counseled God or given God some information that he didn't already have. And who has understood the mind of the Lord? Obviously, the answer is nobody. Verse 35, or who has first given to God so that it might be paid back to him again? You never gave God anything to indebt him. Whether we're talking about money, whether we're talking about information, whether we're talking about praise and worship, you've never given God anything so that you can indebt him that he owes you something. And verse 36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. All things. All things. things. Things all. As many things as you can think of, they're from him, to him, for him. All things. So what does that exclude? Nothing. Nothing. Everything is from him, to him, through him. Does that include evil? I mean, it's all things. Consider this. Consider the entrance of evil into the world. It happened as a result of Satan becoming raised up in pride... And saying, I will place my throne in the place of the north, and I will be worshipped like God. Okay, then we read in the book of Revelation that Satan is ultimately going to be placed in the lake of fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, so could God, the moment that Satan fell, the moment that Satan got raised up in pride, the moment that Satan said that he was going to place his throne up and that he was going to be worshipped like God, could God at that moment have put Satan in the lake of fire? Yes. Yeah, sure he could. Why didn't he? Because he has a purpose. God has a plan that he determined before the foundation of the world. And that is why evil exists, because all things, every created thing, is from him and through him and to him. And consequently, to him, Paul wrote, belongs the glory forever, and that deserves a good amen right there at the end of that. Just amen that God gets all the glory forever because he created everything for his own glorification. He's in the enterprise of glorifying himself, and those are the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, and the depth and the wisdom of God are unsearchable and unfathomable to our human mind. Okay, that is all introduction to the introduction, It's just kind of preparing our minds for approaching this idea of theodicy, because theodicy does mean a vindication or a judgment of God. It is a vindication of God's holiness in light of evil on the planet, but we also, as I said, have to approach it with appropriate humility, considering the kind of God that we're talking about. Considering the God who is in charge of absolutely everything, nothing exists without him. He is the first cause of all things, and it all serves to his ultimate glory and his ultimate purpose. So even as we go through this process of theodicy, we have to remember who we're dealing with and approach this with humility. So why then? Why does theodicy exist? Well, because we're also told by Peter that we have to be ready to give an answer. The word is apologia. It's the word from which we get apology. It doesn't mean like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry I'm a Christian. What it means is to be ready to give a defense. It is a legal word. It's a word that was used in court. When you were charged with some crime, you had the right to make a defense. That even exists today in American jurisprudence. You can't just be charged and immediately thrown in jail. You are given the right by the Constitution to make your defense. Right, George? Right. That's our lawyer speaking. So, the most famous use of that word in, the word in the way you're defining it is Plato. Plato, oh the, yeah. The word right. uh, apology is Socrates', His apology. Socrates yeah. argument for himself. Yep, absolutely right. So Peter incorporates that word and says that we, as Christians, need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us, for the fact that we do have this faith, that we do have this confidence in Christ. And so we have to be ready to give a defense to everyone who inquires about that hope that is within us. So we need to be ready when the online cynics and the online atheists or even those of our own family or those of our friends, those who we work with, you're going to hear these arguments. You're going to hear people say, well, then God can't be true because look at the misery in the world. And we need to be ready to give a defense. But to do so, says Peter, with appropriate kindness and humility. So let's talk about Epicurus for a moment. Are you familiar with Epicurus? He was an ancient Greek philosopher, lived from 341 to 270 BC. He is quoted a surprising amount online, even though people don't know that this argument goes back to Epicurus. It's where it really began. But versions of this same argument are floated around on the internet an awful lot. Some people claim that this is kind of the knockout argument against God, the God of the Bible, the way God is described. Epicurus' argument focuses on the problem of evil and how it might present a problem to the classical concept of God that is generally accepted by believers, theists like us. So that set of questions that Epicurus is about to ask, these propositions that he put forward, are known as the Epicurean Dilemma. There, you can use that in a sentence this week and impress your friends. Here's the way the Epicurean Dilemma goes. Given that God is all-powerful, and given that God is described as loving, and caring for his people, these are the questions he asks. Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Maybe he's willing. Maybe he's a good God. Maybe he's a benevolent God. Maybe he's willing to get rid of evil, but maybe he's just not able to get rid of it. If that's the case, if he's willing to prevent evil, but not able... Well, then he's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful, because there's something he's not able to do. Or is he able? He has the power. He is omnipotent, but he's not willing. Well, then that would make him malevolent, according to Epicurus. Is he both able and willing? Well, then, where does evil come from? Because he has the power to eradicate evil, and he's willing to eradicate evil. Why does evil exist? Or is he neither able nor willing? Then why do you call him God? That's a good set of questions. And those questions, like I said, get bandied about on the internet all the time by people who think that that's sort of the knockout blow to Christianity. I mentioned earlier the very famous atheist who said that when he died, if God existed, that that was going to be his first question. He was going to start with, shame on you that you would let all this stuff go on. That's just a version of the Epicurean Dilemma. If you are all-powerful and if you are good and benevolent, if you have the capability and you have the will and the ability is combined with the will, then there wouldn't be any evil. But since evil does exist, then that must mean that you're not capable or that you're not willing or that you're neither. And so why would we even call you God? It's the standard atheist argument. So it's a question that we Christians ought to be able to answer. That dilemma is based on three assumptions, that God has all the power, that God is indeed holy, and that evil does exist. Now, are those three premises biblical? I think we need to start there and establish that those three ideas are biblically stated And so as Christian people who believe in the Bible, we have to accept all three of those premises, if in fact the Bible says that. So let's do this. Let's take a quick look at some verses that will establish the basics for us, starting with, is God indeed all-powerful? Well, God gives himself the proper name, El Shaddai, which means the Almighty One. The Latin phrase is deus omnipotens. That's where we get the word omnipotent. Okay, so what does potent mean? Strength. Potent is strength, power. What is omnipotent? All-powerful. All-powerful. So God gives himself the name all-power. He is the one who is in charge of everything. Revelation 19, 6. I'm reading from the King James here, and it says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. That's the word almighty. Panto crater. Pan all Pantocrator, all-powerful. You've heard me several times when citing Paul, that Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And, and then the rulers of the darkness of this world. I Usually when I quote that, I say that's the word, Cosmocrator, the rulers of the darkness of this world. And so he is the creator, the ruler, and he is the pantocrator, he is the all-ruler, he is the omnipotent, he is the almighty, he's the ruler of everything and he reigns. Okay, so can we conclude from that that the Bible does indeed say that God has all the power? Well, yes, we can. The God of the Bible is defined as the God who has all power. Agreed? Agreed. Am I boring you yet? No. Okay. You you were quite insistent. That would, that would, thank you. I appreciate that. She was like, no! <laughs> no. <laughs> thank you for joining in. Okay, secondly, is God holy? Does the Bible say that God is holy? Does it say that he is good and not malevolent? Well, Leviticus eleven forty four 44 and 45 God says, I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and you shall be holy, because I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creeps upon the earth, for I am the Lord that brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy." Leviticus 19:2 Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them you shall be holy for I the Lord Yahweh your God am holy. 1 Samuel 2:2 2, 2, There is none holy like the Lord for there is none besides you there is no rock like our God. And of course Isaiah 6:3 we all know this imagery There were angels around the head of God, and one cried out to the other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So far, it sounds like God defines himself as being a holy God. The Bible keeps declaring that he's holy. In fact, beyond just having the intrinsic nature of holiness, everything about him is holy. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. This is one of the reasons that God could say, don't take my name in vain. And he made it a commandment, not just a suggestion. It's one of the big ten written in stone, coming down off Sinai. Do not take my name in vain. Tom prayed it this morning, Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray. When they came to him and said, John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray, so teach us to pray, and Jesus gave them what we refer to as the model prayer. Sometimes it's called the Lord's Prayer. It's not the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer, because the Lord could not pray the prayer, because it included forgive us our trespasses, and he didn't have any trespasses. So he didn't pray that prayer. He said, when you pray, say, our Father, who is in heaven. What's the next thing? Hallowed is your name. Okay, so your name is separate. Your name is holy. Your name is not to be taken in vain. Not only does God have the intrinsic character of holiness, but everything associated with God is thereby holy, including his own name, is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place. How did it become a holy place? Because God is there. Everything affiliated with God is holy. Psalm 99.9 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. Where's his holy mountain? Well, Jerusalem is repeatedly called his holy mountain. Why is it a holy mountain? Because that's where the temple of God was. And that's where God would meet with his people. And that's where the sacrifices and worship of God took place. Therefore, since everything associated and affiliated with God is holy because God is holy, even the mountain where he is worshipped is referred to as a holy mountain. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, But as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all matter of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. So Peter picks up those first couple of verses that I just read for you out of Leviticus, transports them into the New Testament. And says, be holy because God is holy. If you are the people of God, you are thereby referred to as saints. Do you know what the word saints means? In the Greek, it's hagios. It's the word holy. Those who belong to God are his holy ones. The separated ones. The ones who are made separate from the world because of their affiliation with a holy God. Your holiness comes from the fact that God is holy. The word sanctification in the New Testament is hagiosmos. The word holy is right in it. The process of God cleaning you up and separating you from who you used to be and what you used to be like, that sanctification that God is accomplishing is the process of making you holy because he is holy. Last one. Revelation 4.8 is a recitation of what we already saw in Isaiah. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, all-powerful, almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Okay, so... Can we conclude so far that the Bible says God has all the power and that he's holy? Yes. Yeah, that's how the Bible describes God, that he has all the power and he is righteous and holy. So does the Bible also say that evil exists? I mean, not just sin, not just hamartia, not just missing the mark. I'm talking about evil, actual spiritual evil. Does the Bible say that that exists? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it sure does. Starts off in Genesis chapter 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth, and that every intention and every thought of his heart was only evil Continually. That means there were no moments when a little bit of good stuff crept in. All their intentions, all their thoughts since the fall were nothing but evil continually. Psalm 23:4 Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff they comfort me. Matthew 6:13. In that prayer that I just cited, The apostle's prayer is the phrase, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Poneros. Not just evil generally as a force in the world. The evil one. The very embodiment of evil. Deliver us from him. In Matthew 13, Jesus is explaining one of his parables about the tares in his fields. And he says, the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the evil one. That same one, the very embodiment of evil. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. That's how Jesus sees the hearts of human beings. It's not a good description. It's an evil description. John 17, 15, Jesus in his high priestly prayer, praying to God says, I do not ask you to take them, these apostles, out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one, keep them from Satan himself and from the evil that runs rampant in this pernicious world. 1 John 5.19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one the whole world the whole world is under the authority and power of the evil one finally Ephesians 6:12 i could go on and on there are so many verses that talk about the evil of this world and the existence of evil in this world but Ephesians 6:12 i alluded to it a moment ago for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against powers against the world forces of this darkness and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Okay, so far. Does the Bible say that God has all the power? Yes. Yep. Does the Bible say that God is holiness, completely holy, even his name everywhere he is, everything affiliated with him is therefore holy? Yes. Yeah does the Bible say that evil does exist? Yes. Okay, so as we take apart the Epicurean dilemma, we have to remember these three facts, that the Bible says God does have all the power, because that's what the dilemma kept questioning. And he is, in fact, holy, and evil does, in fact, exist. Are you familiar with Augustine? Some people say, Augustine. It all depends on how erudite you want to sound. (laughs) Augustine tried to answer the Epicurean dilemma. In the history of the church, there have been several different theodicies that have tried to answer what were really good questions that we find in the Epicurean dilemma. This is the way that Augustine went after it. Augustine of Hippo is how he was known. 354 to 430 AD, he created what is known as the soul-deciding theodicy, and it was first recorded in his book, The City of God. Has anybody here read The City of God? In The City of God, you find this theodicy. Augustine's theodicy utilizes two primary assumptions, and you have to go along with these assumptions In order to agree with his theodicy, the first is taken from Genesis 3, and it's that God's creation, when God originally made it, was faultless. It was fine, it didn't have any sin in it. The second assumption you have to go along with from Romans 5 is that evil came from within the world due to original sin. Original meaning the first sin, the sin of Adam. That's the original sin. It doesn't mean you've dreamed up something nobody ever thought of before. You know, like, wow, that's an original sin. How'd you think of that? Instead, he says that the original creation was good and spotless, but that mankind are responsible for sin and evil in the world. That it's not something God did. It's something mankind did. So God remains right and pure, but sin is man's fault, thereby essentially leaving God's hands clean. There's a question that I get asked frequently because we believe in the sovereignty of God and in the power and creativity of God. And so when we say that sin serves a purpose within God's economy, people will then say, well, are you saying that God is the author of sin? As if sin itself is somehow intrinsic to God. Like part of the character of God includes sinfulness and evil. And so we have to be able to explain how a creator God could create and bring about evil and sin in his world while at the same time not being sullied by sin. Augustine's answer was to say it's completely man's fault. God had nothing to do with it. God didn't intend it to go this way. It's just the way that men took it. After I got done with this particular lecture, uh, one of the pastors there... From Houston, Yuri Solomon, who I've known for years from the Texas Conference, came up to me and said, I understand what you're saying. I understand that you're saying God is sovereign, and so even evil has its purpose in God's economy. He said, But how in that situation does God still keep his hands clean? So I said to him, Well, evil is a tool for God's ultimate use. God is purposefully allowing and ruling over the evil of this world because it's part of his ultimate plan. So it's just a tool to get us from where we are to our ultimate destiny. So he very wisely said, so it's a question of adequate understanding of evil as a definition. And I said, yeah, you get it. That's exactly what it is. If there was no evil, there'd be no one to save. God's ultimate plan is the glorification of Christ. And the only way to get Christ's ultimate glory is for there to be people for him to save. Christ is referred to as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Why did God reckon him to be the lamb slain if there wasn't going to be anybody who needed a slain lamb? If there wasn't anybody who needed a sin sacrifice, why was Jesus designated as the sin sacrifice before there was anything? Because God's ultimate plan is to have a fallen people who Christ will then save so that he gets all the glory forever as we, the trophies of grace, get to stand in his presence glorifying him for all eternity knowing that he's the one that saved us and we didn't do it at all ourselves there had to be fallen creatures there had to be sin there had to be evil for the ultimate glorification of Christ we just have a definition problem because we don't understand evil because we are the people who experience evil we experience trouble and that's all we know of it all we know is the trouble, all we know is the pain, all we know is the heartbreak, all we know is the difficulty of the evil in the life that we live. Therefore, our definition of evil is colored by the fact that we go through these things, and all we think is evil is always bad. But if it is true, that evil is ultimately going to culminate in the glory of Christ himself for all of eternity, can we say that evil itself is nothing but bad? We would have to say, no, it's a tool that God is using to bring about his predetermined end. Right? Yes. In one of his lectures, Dr. Adams, who I just met for the first time this week, like him a lot. I hope we get to know each other in the coming years. So he said, and he was actually replying to me during his lecture, and he said, one of the ways that God is going to deal with evil is that he is going to judge it, punish it, and eradicate it. Okay, good. This is very, very helpful. Because if we know that that is true, then we can answer the question, how does God keep his hands clean? And is God the author of sin? Because... If evil or sinfulness in any way inhabits any part of the character or nature of God, then what about the fact that God is going to punish and eradicate evil? Is he going to punish and eradicate some part of himself? Well, The answer is no. Therefore, evil is separate from God. Therefore, I continue to argue, it is a tool that God uses. It is part of his creation, and when he is done with it, the same way as when he's done with Satan, he's going to eradicate Satan. When he's done with evil, when it is done the job that he needs it to do, he's going to eradicate it and get rid of it. And he could have eradicated it and gotten rid of it at any point that he wanted, and he hasn't yet because it's still serving its purpose. It's still serving its function as it is driving us inexorably toward the ultimate goal of God, which is his own glory and the glorification of his son. Yeah? Yes. Okay. Okay, so now we're back to the Augustinian theodicy, and we'll be done for the morning. The Augustinian theodicy hinges on the idea that evil is not so much a force, not so much a thing, as much as it is a privation. That's what he argues in the book. In other words, it's the absence of good rather than being a thing in and of itself. And to explain that, Augustine actually uses the analogy of a blind man. And he says, blindness is just the lack of sight. Or darkness is just the absence of light. Therefore, what we perceive as evil is just the privation of good. That's the way that he tried to keep God's hands clean. Of course, the problems with that argument are kind of obvious because it assumes free will. And it's insisting that the evil in the world is a human invention rather than a spiritual invention. There's also what's known as the Aranean Theodicy. This is getting closer to it. The Theodicy of Araneus is just recently, in the last 20, 30 years, authors have gone back and started reading Araneus more completely and understanding that he did develop a theodicy. He was trying to answer the uh, Epicurean Dilemma. The Aranean theodicy casts God as responsible for evil, but also justified in the evil. The Aranean theodicy is distinguished because it accepts God as being responsible for evil, though not holding God at fault for the evil. Okay, so what would my response be to the Epicurean dilemma? Well, first off, It ends with, well then, since evil isn't eradicated, then he must not be willing or capable, and therefore he's not God, because evil exists. Think with me for a moment. If there is no God, if there is no ultimate good, on what basis can you call something evil? How can you say something is really, really bad if you don't have the really, really good to compare it to? If the atheist is correct, if the Darwinist is correct, then what does it matter what anybody does? What does it matter what anybody suffers? We're just little random pieces of protoplasm on the planet, and just because we do damage to someone else or something else or to Mother Earth, what does that matter? Because if there is no God, if there is no righteous standard, if there is no holiness, then there is no way to define what evil is. There is actual point, actual purpose to everything God does. And as we continue this study, we're really going to drill down on that point. That everything God does, by virtue of the fact that he is holy, and that he is all-powerful, and that he is good then everything he does ultimately redounds to his glory, his righteousness, his goodness. It is an example of his power, and it is taking us all to the predetermined end that he has determined for us. Therefore, everything, and really, I started with this statement in a moment. I'm going to say it, and you're going to go, well, why didn't you just say that? We could have been done for the morning. We already read that through him, to him, by him, is all things. All things exist for his glory, for his purpose. And only if you understand the absolute sovereignty of God can you answer the Epicurean dilemma. Only if you believe in what is known historically as the Calvinistic understanding of the Bible. It's the sovereign grace understanding of the Bible. Only if you understand Reformed theology can you give a good answer to the fact that evil exists in God's world. Because we are the people who know that God has all of this in his hand. He is controlling all of it. There is no random evil. Nothing bad can get to you that he didn't ordain to get to you. And even though he provides these troubles in life, Paul also says, with each of those trials and temptations, he provides a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. So he's in charge of the trial and the end of the trial. And it all serves a purpose. Here, I'll close with this. I've said it for so many years now, but I never learned anything really important When I was comfortable. When I was comfortable, I was too busy (laughs) skipping along happily with the blue bird of happiness, and it was all rainbows and kumbaya, and it was all, yay, I'm good. That's not when I'm sitting down thinking seriously about God. I'm just thanking God. Everything's great. Yay. But let God throw some pain on you. Trials, difficulties, evil. He'll drive you to your knees he'll drive you down on your face and you'll cry out to him because you've got nowhere else to go. Now look, you all just said amen to me when I said that, which means we collectively have agreed on that because we figured it out. If we can figure that out, God's got that figured out. And he knows the way to drive you back to himself. He knows the way to build up your faith. He knows the way to drive you to confidence in him and him alone. And evil, trouble, sin, trials is one of the ways he does it. And he's in control of it. And he knows how much you can stand. And he knows how to deliver you. Anybody here been through a hard time at any point in your life? Yeah. How many of you died from it? Oh, oh ha, ha. Oh, ha. Died yourself. Died yourself. Yeah, you could say things like, oh, this one's going to kill me. I'm not going to live through that. And you live through it. And you're still here and you're okay and you're worshiping God because God is the one who brought the trouble and the deliverance and he does it all for his own glory, his own purposes, and that is the only way to construct a genuinely biblical theodicy. Next week, we'll continue doing that. Okay?